Well, uh, good morning, everybody. Good to be here with you guys. We're going to get into our message this morning. Um, if you guys recall, last week, Jacob started a series. Uh, cool, we got that. I'm not going to use any slides today, by the way, because it was too much for me to do. And so uh, we're going to be in the book of Romans. Um, if you guys need a Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you, you can find one there. And you can open up to chapter 15. We're going to hang out in there uh, for the most part today. Um, Jacob started this series called Romans in Reverse, and one of the things that he explained to us last week is that the key points of this idea is that if we begin first with Romans really essentially like 12 through 16, if we start here in the lived theology of what Paul is talking about, what does this mean for the church, what does it look like lived out, then we start to have clearer eyes and ears to see and hear what he's saying in the deep theology of Romans 1 through 8. So that's ultimately the goal of this series, is to kind of begin in reverse, and then to work our way back to some of that deep theology. So this morning we get to look at chapters 14 and 15. Um, I'm not going to go through every verse, because it's a lot of stuff in here, um, but I would say that uh, sometime this week I'd encourage you to read it for yourself. Uh, it's a beautiful couple chapters of Scripture, and um, uh, I think you can take away a lot from this passage, from these two chapters. But I do want to tell you what I plan to do today. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a roadmap for kind of how we're going to unpack this. So I'm going to begin with kind of, again, with this idea of Romans in reverse. I'm going to begin with the main goal and objective in mind. Okay, I've been writing a lot of these academic papers for school, and so we're going to call this our thesis. Okay, we're going to begin with the thesis, uh, and this is going to be a reading from chapter 15, where we, I believe Paul is really getting to the main point in his argument. That's what we're going to look at and start with, and then we're going to backtrack to a couple short passages in chapter 14 to try to understand what's the uh, problem that Paul is addressing, and all of that with the hope that we can see the problem then through the lens of the thesis, the main objective, the goal in mind of what he's, where he's getting at. And of course, as we do that, one of the things that we should always be doing is looking at this from our own context here at Tri-Valley, asking that question, okay, what does this mean for us and our congregation? So that's what I'm going to try to do in the next 30 minutes. I hope you're with me. If I go long, show some grace. Um, let's uh, pray. After I pray, Trish is going to come up and read our passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, God, it's your breath in our lungs, and so we pour out our praise to you, Holy Lord. Great are you, Lord. We love you. Be with us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 15, 1-7 We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Thank you, Trish. So um, I remember when I first started coming to this church, uh, I wasn't yet a Christian, I would say. I was still wrestling with who Jesus was and what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And uh, so our preaching minister at the time, Steve Martin, we started meeting together once a week. And we would actually gather in his office, which strangely enough is actually now my office, which is pretty cool how God works. Um, but I would ask these questions and we would study the Bible together and we would just explore who is Jesus and what does it mean to be a Christian. And I remember after a few months of study and discussion, discussion kind of reaching this point where I'm like, you know, I don't, I, I, I think I'm there. I think I believe in Jesus and I think I want him to be the Lord of my life. And I remember telling Steve, I don't think I need to be convinced anymore about Jesus or about wanting to be a follower of him, but I'm still not so sure about the church because I come from this different background and I have this different perspective on life and I see things differently than um, what I think, at least from, from what I see with other Christians. And I asked him, what happens when I don't agree with other people within the church? And he smiled and he said, you should go spend some time reading Romans 14. And so this passage of these two chapters holds a special place for me for these reasons. And as we look at this today, remember that we're looking at everything from the point of this thesis. And Trish read it right there, is that Paul is saying, he's praying that the church would live in such harmony with each other through Christ that with one voice we would glorify God and therefore welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed us. This is the thesis. This is where Paul is going to get to. And if we stop right there, it's this beautiful image of the church. It's this amens we could say all day long to what that looks like. But so then we have to ask, well, what is Paul addressing then that's not happening? Where is that not taking place? And so just to give you a little bit of background as we get into this, um, this letter to the Romans was written uh, sometime in the late 50s of the first century. Um, and what had happened is that the Jews had been expelled from Rome in uh, Emperor Claudius's reign in around AD 49, and they're returning back somewhere in the mid-50s. And now over that time, these Gentile churches have developed in Rome for a number of years apart from the Jewish Christians. And so as the Jews are returning, they're coming back and they're seeing these Gentile Christians who are doing it quite a bit different than they did. There's actually these practices look a little bit different. They're concerned about it. And specifically, they're not obeying the Mosaic law as they know, as, as they think is right according to what they've been taught and learned the whole time. And it's creating these significant tensions in the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, if you guys remember from the very beginning of Paul's call uh, in, in Acts 9, God says, you're going to be my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So this has been Paul's mission from the beginning. And this is not the first time he's running into this issue, this, this Jew-Gentile issue. We see it happen in Corinth, in the church in Antioch. Um, it becomes a pretty common theme, actually, in many of his letters of some of the issues that that brings up. 
So this is some of that background that we're working with. And what we're going to see in Romans 14, the specific issues that are being addressed in, in chapter 14, verse 2, Paul writes, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And then in verse 5, he says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And so he's talking about really these two main issues, which are dealing with kosher foods and holy days and the observance of these days. And so he's, he's addressing that for the Jewish Christians, or, or it might not even be so split so evenly that there's one group and one group, but he, he is saying that this seems to be the issue. The specific thing that he's addressing is that Jews are insistent that they need to obey these laws, these kosher laws, observing these holy days. Probably in particular the Sabbath would have been the main one that's being addressed here. And the Gentiles are saying, well, that was never part of what we did, and we've been grafted in, so this isn't something that we need to do. This is no longer the issue. But at the heart of Romans 14, Paul is highlighting that some of the major differences in what faith and Christianity look like as it's being lived out, but he's not saying that that's the real problem. He's, that's, that's not the heart of the problem. He's not pointing to the differences themselves as the main issue, but the problem that it is creating within the church, that they are no longer operating in harmony. And so it's important that we don't get lost in the specific issue and then miss the point of what Paul is actually trying to say, what his main argument is, the thesis that we're looking at, right? That these two groups of believers are no longer operating in harmony. They're allowing these differences in interpretation and what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be faithful, to create division and tension between them. They've stopped eating together. They've stopped gathering and welcoming each other around the same table. So this is really the heart of what Paul is getting at. And through chapters 14 and 15, Paul is going to use this language a lot to describe these two groups. He says there's the weak and there's the strong. And so it's important that we understand what is Paul saying. Who are these two groups? And if we study these chapters here, what we can see is that Paul is defining the weak as those who feel it necessary to continue to maintain this Mosaic law, to observe the Torah, that this is important, this is what it means to be faithful, this is what faith should be lived out, following the law properly and getting it correct. They're not eating meat, not because of some environmental reason or animal th issue that we might think about today. They're not eating it because they don't think it's right, that this is unclean. And therefore, we're in danger if we do this to not be welcomed before God. I think it's important to recognize Paul is not saying that the religious devotion of this group is weak. Uh, he is very much aware of the fact that these are people who are descendants of Abraham for the most part. Uh, they are a people of the book. They have lived in the Bible. They have lived faithfully. Paul comes from that same background, and yet he identifies himself in the group of the strong when he says in chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong. So he's already kind of told you what side he thinks he's on. And this weak group, as, as he's calling it, is the people who feel it necessary to uphold the law. I read a quote this week that N.T. Wright says, uh, as he unpacks what Paul's main point in calling them weak, he says, Paul's point is that they have not worked out, or not as fully as he and some others have done, the consequences in, of believing in God as creator 
and Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord? I think this is a cool quote and an important question. There's this one night where Jesus is hanging out with his disciples, and he asks them the question. He says, who do you say that I am? And anyone familiar with this story, you know Peter is the one who kind of responds. He's like, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And what we'll see with Peter's story is he actually doesn't fully know what he's saying at that point. He's going to make a whole lot of mistakes and stumbles as he figures that out and, and learns more about what that statement actually means. But I think this is an important question to wrestle with. Who do you say he is? Who do we say Jesus is? Because this relates to what the, Rome, the church in Rome is wrestling with. Who do we say he is? Is he a Messiah who, if I eat one bite of that unclean food, that I'm in danger? I'm not going to be welcome to this table and maybe even in danger of going to hell. If I don't observe the Sabbath just properly or obey that law just right, I'm in danger of not being welcome. Who do we say he is? Is he a Messiah who, if we take one wrong step or if we do one wrong thing, or maybe for us, something that hits a little more close to home, if we make one change to what happens in our Sunday morning gathering, is he a Messiah who we're in danger of not being welcomed to that table? Or is he the Messiah that John says he didn't come to condemn the world, but that through him the world could be saved? Is he the one Paul writes about in this same letter where he says, I'm convinced that Nothing, there, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Nothing can separate us from him. I think this is an important question that we see this church wrestling with in Rome. Who do you say he is? And I think this is an important question that we need to continue to wrestle with as Christians today. Who do we say he is? And as we go through that, it, it helps us then to start to identify, well, then who is Paul saying are the strong? Well, he's basically saying that the strong are those who have come to the understanding that because of Christ, there is freedom from the law, that now all foods are clean because God has made them clean. Paul says that. I'm convinced, I'm persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. God made it clean. Paul's, Paul's uh, acknowledging this strong group as those who would probably say that although keeping holy days may still be a good thing, this may actually help us in our devotion to the Lord, um, but Christians are no longer under that obligation to observe these special days any longer. As long as whatever we do is done for the glory of God. That's a clear part of what Paul is highlighting here. And so again, the major problem is not the category which these people might fall into. I think actually Paul, if we're reading this right, he's actually making the case that there are going to be differences. Uh, he, he's basically saying that some of that just comes straight out of our backgrounds, like ethnically. For the Jews who've been taught this for so long, this is what it looks like to be faithful. For the Gentiles who are grafted into this, this vine, this is what it looks like. This is what we know. I don't think Paul is saying that there's not going to be these differences, that we may have different lenses in how we see faith and how, how that's going to shape then how we interpret the Scriptures. But I think Paul is acknowledging that whatever we do, whatever group we fall into, do it for the glory and honor of God. And the challenge here, as I've been reading this, is that Paul is not gentle to either group. He's 
he's correcting both groups. In, in Romans 14, verses 1 through 4, he says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. So he's exhorting the strong. He's saying, you who are strong, the one who's weak, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And then he's going to shift it here, and he's going to correct the weak. He says, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul corrects both. And so what about us then at Tri-Valley? What does this look like? As I've been wrestling with this the last couple weeks, one of the questions I've been finding myself uh, wrestling with is, what category do I fall in? Am I one of the strong ones he's talking about, or am I one of the weak ones? And I'll let you guys answer that on your own time. Um, but I, I think that this is an important question that I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with. And then I thought about it on another level this week. What if we considered it on a, a congregational level? Like if we looked at all of Livermore and all the different churches, maybe some of all the different denominations, and we looked at it, and Paul was writing this letter to the church, the body of Christ in Livermore, would we be in the category of the strong? Or would we be in the category of the weak? Who is he? Where would we be in this argument? Because we're not necessarily quarreling, quarreling over food. That's not something that I hear us argue about very often. Um, we're not quarreling over observance of holy days. One of the things I really appreciate about this church in this congregation, what I've learned in my faith, is that every day we remember the death, burial, and resurrection. Every Sunday we observe that. We just have done that today with our, our Lord's Supper. Every day we do that. And so there's not really one day that we deem more holy than another. I mean, Easter is a great day that we love and we celebrate the risen Lord. But even that, we don't necessarily see it any different than any other Sunday because all days we remember what it means to be a Christian and, and who died for us, who sacrificed himself for us. So these aren't, these aren't issues that we wrestle with. But what are some of our issues that we wrestle with? What are some of the biblical interpretation issues that we struggle with or traditions that create separation for us or disagreement, disharmony in the church? Could it be one that I've heard is what it looks like to worship in reverence, what that means, whether that's a dress code thing or, or something else. I, there's a story a, a little while back of a young man who came into our church, a uh, young adult, probably 19, 20 or so, and he came into our church. He had fallen away from God. He really wasn't in this place where he's kind of considering himself a Christian maybe, um, but he was visiting that day, and he showed up, and he was wearing a hat or a beanie or something like that, and our church, we greeted him. We walked over, hey, glad to have you here, and someone said, hey, be respectful and take off your hat. And when I heard that, I wrestled with two questions. One, do we think that that helped make that young man feel welcome here? I would say no, because he hasn't been back since. Um, and then two, I would ask the question, do, do you think Jesus really cares if he wears a hat or not? Like, does Jesus want him to conform to some outward appearance of worship, or does he want him to turn his heart toward him? 
I think this is a bigger question that we should ask. So, so maybe reverence in worship and what that looks like is one of the issues that we struggle with here. Or maybe it has to do with worship style. A couple weeks ago, I went to an Ash Wednesday service, and it was this liturgical model. It was very different. It was a little, little weird. Um, but, you know, we're kind of more in this extemporaneous realm. That's kind of how we operate with our worship. Um, maybe that's a difference. Or maybe, uh, well, they had an organ playing, and there were some instruments going on, and some churches have full bands. And I've heard that as a major argument, especially in the churches of Christ and in the history that we have. Is that, is that one of those issues that we struggle with? Worship style, worship traditions that we might have, or maybe one that's been right in our face lately, the women's roles issue. Is this something that if a woman speaks into a microphone, that this is, this is one of our big quarreling issues that we struggle with as a church in our interpretations of what that means and what that looks like? I've heard people directly or, or indirectly kind of make the, the statement that what we do in here on Sunday morning, whether that's an instrument in worship or a woman speaking, we're in danger. We're in danger of not being welcomed at that table. We're on that slippery slope and possibly going to hell. Maybe baptism is one that comes up a lot. I didn't really know the history of all of this in baptism until I kind of came into the church and started to get to know this. And I often hear arguments for what type of baptism is correct and acceptable. Is it this full immersion that you have to have? Is it a sprinkling fine? Is, you know, can you have something poured over you, whatever it might be? I've heard stories that if they were dunking someone and a hand came up, so they're like, oh, we got to redo it, right? And so they went and redid the baptism. Is that, you know, these, these arguments that I hear? I actually heard a story from a youth minister. Um, he was saying that there was a teenager who went to the youth minister and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I want to be baptized. And of course, the youth minister was so excited. He's like, that's awesome. It's great. Rejoiced with you, and, and we'll make that happen. And the teenager said, well, there's one problem, though. Like, I am terrified of water, and I cannot have water get on my face. I'll, I'll panic, I'll freak out, like I cannot get my face wet. It'll just, there's no way I can do it. And the youth minister's like, okay, well, don't worry. We'll figure something out, and uh, we'll get you baptized. So the youth minister goes, and he's talking to the senior minister, and he's telling him the situation, and he asks him the question. He's like, do you think it's going to be a problem? And uh, the senior minister looks at the youth minister and he says, well, he'll go to heaven, but he's not going to have a face. <laughs> so, obviously, it's a little bit of humor. I don't, um, don't want to downplay the importance of baptism. That's not what I intend to do. I actually believe a lot in baptism, and I'm pretty passionate about it, and I think it's an important conversation to have. It's a good discussion that we should be talking about, but this story hopefully draws some humor to the fact that sometimes we get a little bit crazy with doctrine and getting it all right and figuring out all these things, and if we can just get this pattern just right exactly to what saves people and what's right and correctable faith, that um, we'll be good. And maybe sometimes doing that, we miss the heart of Jesus. Jesus actually said that to the Pharisees one time. He says, you know, you search the scriptures to find your eternal life, but you've completely missed me. 
I think this is something that we have to wrestle with. And I have to confess to you guys as I personalize this message a bit that this has been a struggle for me. Um, I've been a Christian now for about seven years. So this year will be seven years. And I've been doing ministry now a little over three. So basically half of the time I've been a Christian, I've been doing ministry. And uh, much like Paul, when I first uh, came to Christ, I've felt since then, I've felt very compelled to go and take the gospel to people who were just like I was. People who don't know Christ, people who don't want to know Christ, essentially to the Gentiles. And I came across this translation, I was reading this through several different translations this last couple weeks, and in the NLT, Romans 15.20 says this, it says, My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard, rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. And I read that and I'm like, amen, like that's, that's kind of how I feel. Like I, I want to go share the gospel. I want to go tell people who don't know Jesus. I actually, I have a desire to go out into the world and meet people who are different. And, and sometimes I feel like, well, it seems like Christians are kind of scared of the world. And I, I, I'm not. I like to kind of go out there and meet some people with different beliefs and backgrounds and put myself right into the middle of it and just try to get to know some people. Try to understand what it is they believe. And then in that, to be able to represent Jesus as I do that. Sometimes directly, vocally, expressing the gospel. And sometimes just as a listener in, in how I approach and live out my actions. What I struggle with oftentimes and what I often don't have patience for is trying to convince other Christians about who can do what in a Sunday morning gathering. I don't really have a lot of patience for that. Trying to convince Christians to go meet or befriend other non-Christians and to put yourselves out there a bit. I, I get a little frustrated. And I love studying Scripture. Uh, it's, it's become the most important thing to me, probably. Uh, maybe outside of prayer. I, I love reading the Scriptures. I love expanding my knowledge and understanding. There's times, though, where I feel like um, we can tend to be like the lawyer in the passage with the Good Samaritan where we're trying to understand just right how, what Jesus actually meant when he said, go love your neighbor as, you know, uh, as yourself. When it seems pretty obvious to me that what he wants is to go and love your neighbor and show mercy and be merciful, just go do it. it, it for me, I, I get a little frustrated when we're like talking about it and like, well, let's just go. Like, I, don't, I don't get it. And since I've come into this role of working for the church, um, I have been exposed to much more of these internal tensions that happen in, in the church, in the congregation, over doctrine or over interpretation. I've, it's, it, it's become more evident to me, things I didn't even realize before. And I believe there's a lot of important conversations that need to happen and should happen, but sometimes I struggle with all the time that we spend, in my opinion, overcomplicating it when there's this mission field right in front of us that's just waiting for us to go share the gospel. And if I'm perfectly honest, uh, this has led me at times to cast judgment on some of you. It's led me to feel a little bit of that despising attitude for people who don't think like I do or don't interpret the gospel like I do, don't see through the same lens. And then I'm reading Romans 14 and 15, and I hear Paul's main thesis is not calling out one group or the other and wherever I happen to fall in that argument, 
He's not necessarily, in this passage at least, trying to straighten out their doctrine. He's telling them you're not living in harmony because of the way that you see these different things. This is our thesis, right? This is his main argument. I don't think that Paul uses the term weak as a compliment. I think what we see from Paul and and the things that he writes, that if you found yourself in that category, he would say, you need to grow. You need to learn more. You need to unpack more of that question. Who do you say Jesus is? But what I hear him saying a lot in these two chapters is to the strong, you need to love better. You need to be more patient. You need to bear with the failings of your brothers and sisters. You need to gather around the same table. Romans 14, verses 17 through 20, Paul writes this, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ, meaning whoever serves Christ in this way, so in righteousness, in peace, and in joy, he says, is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. What makes the church stronger for mutual upbuilding? Right? Paul corrects both in here. This is his argument. This is his thesis. Romans 14.1, gather, welcome him to the table. That we're supposed to gather around the same table. And not to quarrel. Right? Not to quarrel over opinions. In 15.2, he says, let each of us please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. And 15.7, which I think is kind of the heart of this, therefore welcome one another. Another translation says, accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. This is what he's calling us to do, is to live in harmony. And this has been a challenge for me this week. I'm really grateful for this church. I'm really grateful for this congregation. I would say something that has become evident to me is that there have been people in this church for many years who have wanted to see improvements in the women's roles discussion. And what I'm grateful for is that they've modeled patience. And they've bared with some of this discussion. They haven't left. They've leaned into community. And now we're making some of these changes. And I know for a fact there are people in here right now who have an issue with it. It is a struggle. And I'm grateful that what I've seen, at least to this point, is that they're not leaving. They're not going. We're leaning into community. We're gathering around the same table. Sometimes those discussions will get a little heated, but hopefully we're getting better at not just gathering around the table to quarrel, but actually to lean into what is the church supposed to be. This argument that we're supposed to live in harmony. I'm going to welcome the praise team back up slowly, make your way. I'm going to tell one more story while they do. Um, In closing, I I was thinking about this this week. Every week, I work uh, a shift as part of the Livermore Homeless Refuge. So for those of you who don't know, the Homeless Refuge, they partner with different churches to stay in their buildings to house the homeless. And um, there's many churches involved. Some weeks, it's here at Tri-Valley Church of Christ. Some weeks it's at Asbury Methodist Church. 
Some weeks it's at uh, Holy Cross Lutheran Church. And then every weekend it's at First Presbyterian Church. So these different churches, different denominations. Um, there's volunteers that come from all these different churches. Some come from within those that I mentioned. Some come from Catholic churches. There's some who aren't Christians who just want to be a part of helping out, and they come to help out and serve at the refuge. And every time I go in for my shift and I take over for the person who worked the shift before me, they come to the door, they open the door, they greet me, they welcome me, and I come in. The person who comes to take over for my shift, I go to the door, I open it, I greet them, I welcome them, they come in. We talk for a few minutes about who's staying at the refuge, how many people are there that night, any notes or issues or, or anything like that that we need to pass on to each other. Uh, we spend a few minutes just conversing, talking to each other, getting to know each other. It's been really cool, actually. I'm meeting all kinds of people doing it. Um, but one thing that we definitely don't get caught up talking about is we don't talk about all of our differences in interpretation and theology. We don't talk about whose church is right and whose is wrong. Uh, we don't argue because we are focused on the common mission that is in front of us, which is loving people like Jesus loved and being kingdom builders like Jesus asked us to. And this is one of the things I love about being a part of the homeless refuge community is that this unity that gets expressed through this one organization, many different churches are coming to be this one body of Christ to do something that we can make a difference here in the community. We have said that the mission is going to be more important than the different things that we could quarrel over. And that's something I love about the Livermore Homeless Refuge. This is something that I'm praying for more of this spirit throughout the body of Christ, not the congregation of the Church of Christ, but the body of Christ, the whole church. This is, this is something I'm praying for. This is something I hear Paul praying for. And I'm also praying this for our church, for our congregation. And so with that, before we sing this next song, I just want to close with a benediction here to repeat Paul's words. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may welcome, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God.